Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale November 3rd, 2021. I am Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Ooh, Tucker, it's getting cold, it's getting wet, it. it's getting gray, <laughs> it's getting wonderful weather time. I'm very excited by it all. Also, happy Marvel Studios Eternals release week. There's a lot of buzz going on. There's all kinds of Eternal stuff happening this week. Hopefully, y'all go out and check it out at your local movie theater. Experience it only in theaters. There's a really cool AR experience that is kind of like a little prequel for it. If you have an iPhone or an iPad, go check that out. And uh, we're in the spirit of Eternals. So what's our episode this week? This week, our reading club will be with a current ongoing series Eternals writer, Kieran Gillen, modern Marvel master. So exciting when he returns to the House of Ideas to unleash what has been a huge, epic, grand-scale Eternal story that's still unfolding, that we're still learning new stuff about every single week. We dig into his run. We dig into, in this reading club specifically, Jack Kirby's original run. We read the first issue to kind of settle down and set ourselves, but also issues 7 through 12 after that, a story arc right in the middle of it all. And getting Karen's thoughts on everything, the influences that that run had on him about his reaction to it all. It's really, really fascinating stuff. So that's what we're chatting with this week. Yeah. Eternals is is a lot of fun. I can't wait for, for us to get into that. We have a somewhat lighter week this week in terms of releases of the new books. Um, there's some great stuff with Infinity Comics. You know, we talked about it last week coming out, the Infinity Comic for Spine Tingling Spider Man. I'm taking my cues from one Nick Lowe, and that is probably the correct way to say the title. But come on, Saladin Ahmed and Juan Ferreira doing a Spidey story it's so good. And Tucker, have you heard the theme song? Hell yeah, I have. It's so spectacular. Just anything that those three gents get their hands on, I am totally on board for. This is one of my favorite things in a while. Yeah, the theme song is uh, true. Ding, dang, delight. It is creepy. We had Nick Lowe on This Week in Marvel last week at the tail end of the week. You can check that out if you're not already subscribed to that podcast. And so I, I said this to Nick, and I'm repeating it here, that when we put Catherine Grace, my two-year-old daughter, to sleep, we sing songs, and we tell her stories and all this stuff. And one of the songs that my wife made up for her is a little lullaby called basically close your eyes, go to sleep. And Catherine, when I put her to bed, she'll sometimes say, sing song, close her eyes. I'm like, baby, I don't know this song that well. Your mom <laughs> made it up. And she'll start singing it. She'll close your eyes, go to sleep. And it's really cute. But the spine tingling Spider-Man theme song is close your eyes and go to sleep. And now it's stuck in my head <laughs> of when I have to put her to bed. It is... It is a weird connection. There. Yeah. You can't play that theme for baby Catherine. And that is a terrifying way to go to bed. Yeah, truly. <laughs> well, we could talk about the song all we want, but why don't we play a little bit of Close, Close Your Eyes right now. Close, close your eyes. Go, go to sleep. The man with Close. 
And if you want to hear the full song, you can go to marvel.com. All right, that's enough of all this, Mishigas. We need to get into what we're doing on this show, which is telling you all about the brand new books out this week, uh, including the stuff that is hitting Marvel Unlimited, both the Infinity comics that are brand new and some of the stuff hitting the service uh, as normally they do, as well as the collections on sale this week. And then we'll get into our reading club, which we talked about. We do have to think of a clever award, and I say clever in quotes, uh, award (laughs) to give to some of the books out this week. But our first pick of the week is Death of Doctor Strange Avengers, number one. And we have actually two Death of Doctor Strange issues to talk about this week. This is the first one. This is written by Alex Pacnadel with art by Ryan Bodenheim, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Before I go any further, shout out to... The Queen, Rochelle Rosenberg. We've had her on the show before. She's amazing. She's so cool. She's so funny. She's an incredible colorist. She's also a bodybuilder. And she got so shredded. She's been working towards competitions. And she is crushing the game. She's so great. Shout out to Rochelle. Just being the best. One of the hardest workers around. Seriously. Like, we read her name so many times every week. It's awesome. Yes. And... Her work in here is terrific because this is, this is you know, a little bit more of a magical book for the Avengers. There's a lot of cool stuff. You know, something that we've talked about a couple times in various issues is like coloring of certain magic things, especially around Doctor Strange. I'm looking at a mask that's in here early on in this issue, and the sort of line work of the colors in the mask is so gnarly and so cool. But this is a big one because Doctor Strange, he dead. Okay, fine. We understand that. With Doctor Strange down, there's no Sorcerer Supreme. So the barriers holding against a lot of evil forces have come down. A lot of things are going on in various magical dimensions and spheres. So it's up to a lot of heroes to try to pick up the slack and figure out what to do. And in this issue, we see the Avengers struggling with certain problems, certain things going on. We get a nice trip to the nexus of all realities, which is always fun. But I think one of my favorite things about this issue is the sort of mythology that Alex and the crew build around Sidorak and that god, that magical part of things. Often we think of Sidorak because of the juggernaut. He gets his powers from the crimson gem of Sidorak. But it's also a very big magical component. Doctor Strange has the Crimson Bands of Sidorak as one of his spells. And so it straddles the like mutant world, but also straddles into the general Marvel Universe world. And here you get to see the Avengers battling forces and elements of Sidorak in ways we've never seen before. And it actually turns into a really emotional story about family, about loss, about mourning, about sort of dealing with... A giant crisis and it's not at all what i expected out of this issue and i i dug it yeah yeah i agree it, it's been really cool to see how different stories different tie-ins different characters have been reacting to what's a big decision across the marvel universe i think it's really really fascinating and it ties directly like you said ryan into my pick this week 
which is Strange Academy Presents the Death of Doctor Strange Number 1. That's immediately one of the first books that I thought of when hearing about that this was going to happen is, you know, obviously you think of Doctor Strange in current continuity. You think of Captain Marvel. You think of, obviously, the Avengers. You think of different spaces that this is going to really impact. And obviously, Strange Academy is one of them. And this issue is written by Scotty Young with art by Mike Del Mundo, colors by Mike Del Mundo and Marco D'Alfonso with letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. It's fascinating to see how the fellow faculty of Strange Academy are responding, are trying to take up that space that's left by like their boss in certain ways. But it's also really fascinating to see how the kids react here. And that's really what makes this book so special is over the course of this run of, you know, obviously this is a tie-in, but in, in the main ongoing series, getting to know those kids and finding so much that just warms you to them as characters. So seeing the reverberations of this head down to the Strange Academy campus is really cool. Now, when we think of Strange Academy, it immediately comes to mind, obviously, Scotty, but also Umberto Ramos. And Umberto, not just in terms of the visuals of this story, but Umberto has been deeply involved in the story itself, as he should be, being a Marvel legend. But this being a tie-in issue, this is brought to us by Mike Del Mundo. And Good God, it is so gorgeous. And he's truly one of the few artists that I think could jump in from Berto and really bring his own unique energy to it without losing any of the charm or the idiosyncrasies that we've come to know and love about a book with this title. All of that is wrapped up with Scotty's like delightful, perfectly timed undercutting of the events. And it really is a, a characteristic of some of my favorite stories across media is knowing when to act in reverence of the events that are going on in the story, but also knowing exactly the right moments to pull a joke, to subvert everything that's going on in just the right way. And I think Scotty is so masterfully doing that. So we have that story going on. And then what's really cool is that we have like one page stories that are just about those Strange Academy kids. They're all written by Scotty. I'm going to run through the artists really quick. The Desi story is by Nico Henry Sean. The Emily and in parentheses, Cat Beast story is by Peach Bamoko. How cool is that? Scotty and Peach coming together. Oh my God, I love it. Scotty and Peach sounds like a drink. <laughs> yeah. Yo, uh, bartender, give me a Scotty and Peach, please. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, Berto jumps in with longtime collaborator, colorist Edgar Delgado for the Herman story. We have a Calvin story, which is by Alessandro Capuccio. That's a name that I'm really excited to continue seeing more and more. Edgar also does colors on that. The Gus story is brought to you with art by Gustavo Duarte. The Howie and Heidi is by Ciafia and Edgar Delgado as well on colors there. The Toth story is with David Baldion and Edgar as well. Edgar jumps on the Zoe story with Natasha Bustos. That's a lot in one issue. And the fact that they kind of just jump around, they tell these little individual stories. Like the Gus story, I think has like two words on the entire page. It's a very visual story. It goes from that, goes to something that's much more dialogue heavy and things like that. But they're all wonderful. They're all delightful. They all tell different parts of the same story at the same point in Strange Academy history. And what I think is maybe the most crucial twist that we've seen yet for this corner of the Marvel Universe to deal with. So this is a really, really fun issue that I really enjoyed. Yeah. One more pick this week. It is X-Men Legends number eight. It is written by Larry Hama, art by Billy Tan, colors by Chris Sotomayor, letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. It's another issue set in uh, Larry Hama's 
awesome, awesome, awesome Wolverine run. This specifically takes place around issue 68 or so. 68 actually has Wolverine and Omega Ready type stuff going on. And so in here, we get to see some more stuff around that. But I have a blast with these. It's like a throwback in all the best ways. You get to see 90s Wolverine and Jubilee fighting Lady Deathstrike. You get to see really cool sort of modern penciling and coloring from Billy and Chris. And it just looks great. It is action-packed. It's got kind of gruff Wolverine, Mallrat, Jubilee. What more could you want out of it? It's a hoot and a holler. All right, now we're jumping into the rest of the new Marvel mags heading your way this week. And as suggested by producer Jasmine, we will be toasting a glass of Scotty and Peach to each of these comics. First up is Amazing Fantasy number four. And who boy, you are going to need a really tall glass of Scotty and Peach as you read this one, because this is a dark story that I think is really, really wonderfully done because of how fine-tuned it all is. It is straight out of the brain of Kari Andrews, who is the writer and artist here. And it's really fascinating in that way to see the story a writer-artist wants to tell in this case, the way that it's visualized. Obviously, knowing it's all coming from one mind is really fascinating. And I think it's especially interesting to see in the context of the previous three issues. This is going to be one that I'm very excited to see in collections because there's a big story that's being told here with a lot of emotion. And when you connect all those dots, especially, I think it really, really falls into place. So another great one from Kari. All right, we've got Darkhawk number three out this week. And this one sees the main hero of the book, Connor, who is, he's going through so much stuff. He's dealing with the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis and working through all that. But at the same time, he's also kind of getting his Uncle Ben moment, you know, if you catch my meaning, and he's he's working through that. And we really see him starting to embrace the being of Darkhawk and like what that means for him and where he goes from here. So you get to see that. And thankfully, he's not alone. He is helped by a character at the end. So I'll give my Scotty and Peach award to the character who shows up at the end and what that means in helping Connor on his journey. Oh, yeah. Next up, we have a couple of Star Wars books. The first is Star Wars number 18. And this is a really fascinating one. It's sort of a story that revolves around three characters, two of which are the ones that we actually literally focus on in this issue. The third one sort of looms large in the tale without actually playing too much of a part in this actual issue. And that's because in this one, Leia meets Kira. And that's a really, really interesting thing that only until recently, I never thought we would actually get to see those two characters come together and have a conversation about, obviously, Han, a character they both have a long, long history with, but also about everything else that's going on in the realm of Star Wars. It's a really, really fascinating thing. And I think in general, it's been really cool to see one of the big mainstay, like foundational elements of the Star Wars story and Star Wars era that we're in right now evolve. And I think after War of the Bounty Hunters and moving into just the the Ford moving continuity, knowing that Kira is going to be a bigger and bigger part of that is just a really fascinating part. So my Scotty and Peach for Star Wars 18 goes to Kira because I'm just excited about how that character is going to continue to evolve, continue to challenge everybody that she interacts with in the Star Wars universe, as well as us as readers. And in a similar sense, there is a bunch of stuff happening in Star Wars Bounty Hunters. That's issue number 17 is out this week. 
week. And Valance, boy, oh boy, talk about a character that we have gotten to know in new and unexpected ways in recent months and recent years. Again, this is a character that comes from like deep Star Wars lore, was resurrected in current continuity, not literally, but in terms of like publishing, in terms of stories that are being told about this character. And we've gotten to know him so, so well, not just him as a bounty hunter, but him as uh, like a family man in so many different senses. So over the course of these 17 issues, they've all led to this point. This issue is called Last Stand. And Valance is in a very bad place. So because we, this poor guy has been through so much, I give him a nice little toast. Uh, really, really fascinating stuff going on in Bounty Hunters as this like much bigger story than I ever expected continues to be told. For sure. All right. Our last new print and digital comic of the week is Winter Guard number three. This one has a lot of really neat stuff in it, including a lot of backstory on the Red Guardian of the Marvel Universe, which I think is going to be crucial for folks who are excited about this character, want to learn more and see where he fits in with everything. My two favorite characters in this book, I think, are Chernabog and Purin like the god weirdos of this book. They're a blast. I want more of them. But we get a whole bunch of other stuff. I will give my Scotty and Peach for this issue to the host of this book, which is Dracula. He has a like a little quote-unquote dinner party. He's not biting them. He's not like drinking some blood from the Winter Guard or for any of the other characters, but he's just so confident and so cool and so gnarly. I like that you've got this going on over here, all the stuff that Benjamin Percy has been building around in the Wolverine book with the vampires and how it all sort of feels. Oh, and, and what Jason Aaron and crew have been doing in, in Avengers, it feels really good. And I like this Dracula where he is right now a lot. Here, here. Um, now let's pop over to Infinity Comics coming this week. As usual, a host of great stuff. I've been having so much fun with these Infinity Comics, but we have a new one heading your way this week, and that is Hulkling and Wiccan Infinity Comic number one. It's written by Josh Trujillo with pencils by Jody Nishijima, colors by Matt Mila. And honestly, like this is one of my big takeaways over recent years, specifically in the fallout of Empire, where so much changed for both of these characters. I literally will take any opportunity I get to spend more time with them. So getting to do that, as well as getting to have more fun with the Infinity Comics, is just great. Yeah. You're talking about Empire reminded me, anybody who has played Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy game, getting Kotati references, Throg shows up, all kinds of wild stuff. That game is a treasure and a delight, just like all the books out this week that we're hyped about. Also on Marvel Unlimited this week, we've got the first issue of Amazing Fantasy, which you can check out. Uh, I think it's the final issue of Cable, which really bookends that title very nicely. Wonderful Phil Noto, Jerry Duggan joint. Man, there's a lot of books out this week. We got Mighty Valkyries, number four, Shang-Chi, number three, Sword, number seven. There's some really excellent comics this week. Oh, and of course... Beta Ray Bill, number five. That is worth your subscription to Marvel Unlimited right there. 
Now looking at collections, a bunch of stuff available this week. America Chavez, Made in the USA. That was a limited series that I really, really enjoyed. Fantastic Four, Volume 8, The Bride of Doom. Dan Slott's Fantastic Four run that just literally continues to get better with every issue, with every arc. And then if you're looking for some Hawkeye action, if you're excited about Hawkeye being in the news, we have Hawkeye by Fraction and Aha, the saga of Barton and Bishop. That is the entirety of that run with actually, I think, two extra stories that weren't part of the main Hawkeye run. Highly suggest everybody go pick that up. It's great comic books. Also great comic books, Jack Kirby's friggin' Eternals, you guys, and the current Eternals. We're going to be talking about all of that with who? With Kieran Gillen. Let's do it. Tucker, Chet, Marcus, we are talking about Eternals with our wonderful guest, Kieran Gillen. Kieran, welcome to the show. Hello, lovely to be here. I always try to drop octaves so I can try to do an owl earring. But, uh, <laughs> in terms of the random British guy, he's the like the tree beard rumbling one, and I'm that weird nasally bumblebee <laughs> dude. Uh, so we, we take our roles. Love to be here, anyway. Uh, Kieran, thanks so much again for joining us here today. We have a ton to get into with Eternals. Today, we're going to jump into a few issues of the original Eternals run, including the kickoff issue, as well as an arc in the middle there. But just to get things going here, when was your first experience with the Eternals? When did that get going for you? Obviously, you're beyond a comics pro. You're a modern master. But when did it start for you <laughs> when it comes to the old Eternals? Oh, Tucker, you sweetheart. <laughs> um, <laughs> you'll make a guy blush. I came to comics quite late. In Britain, Like, if you're not living in a city, you had no access to comic shops and limited access to American books. So like, the only real access to comics we had was like the reprints. And also the reprints are completely asynchronous. So you had like 1980s Secret Wars next to 1970s Machine Man with 1960s Four. You know what I mean? That's not really one book that happened, but that is literally, you know, a 60s book, a 70s strip and an 80s strip all together. So you had no idea how anything tied together and everything you got was random. So there's all random corners of stuff I know quite well from childhood and big areas I don't. Eternals, I actually only read properly, pretty much like when I was asked to do Eternals. And I'd read bits before, but I'd actually gone and read the Kirby run in detail. So like the Eternals, I got indirectly stuff like you know seeing Cersei in the Avengers or like even just the basic powerhouse visual of the Celestials that's the kind of bit so you got it as it percolated through the entire Marvel Universe rather than specifically the Eternals yeah I'm in a similar place because I'm a huge Jack Kirby fan but I didn't read Jack's Eternals for a while and then I read them when I was at Wizard and I was like this is a lot and I think at the time I was you know it's so much of what Jack was like super into and, and given free reign to do. And I didn't fully appreciate it. And then I read it again a couple of years ago and I was like, I like this. It's really cool. It's really trippy. And then rereading it again here, especially in light of reading your Eternals and thinking about how the Eternals sit in sort of like the cultural landscape of Marvel as a whole. Man, I loved it so much again. Just like rereading it here, I was like giggling and I was excited and thinking about the deafness of the storytelling and how like he's balancing all these different things and everything feels like it keeps moving. It's like what we always talk about when we talk about Jack Kirby's work, usually visually, it's like there's a motion to it, but here he's writing and drawing and there's just such motion to his storytelling. It's everything is 
pushing you forward into learning about the Eternals, learning about the Celestials, moving from place to place. I'm glad you chose issues 7 through 12 because they're so exciting. Why in particular did you choose these issues? It's like I think you really capture the kineticism of it. The thing about the Eternals is it really it goes through. I mean, everyone talks about, as you say, Kirby's energy and storytelling, but this is also on, across all levels. Like issue one is, here is this guy called Ike Harris, and then, you know, lots of humans, this very kind of explorey thing. And then you jump seven issues and then you're where that is. I think it's the strongest part of the entire run. And it's also the bit where the ideas are really going for it. You probably don't even realise and like, oh, we haven't seen the main characters in two issues. Or like, you know, it's just this big idea of the floating cast. And also it's, it's still throwing ideas at the page. It's still introducing major new characters. I mean, Sprites and turn up to issue nine. The Uni Mind's in issue 12. I think specifically these arcs are interesting because it's, it's where you see Jack really start to pick apart the problems of the Eternals. You know, he's a guy who fought World War II. You know, he's a, a firmly anti-racist guy. And there's some real kind of like, because it's very inspired by uh, Chariots of the Gods. The 1970s book was the idea that, you know, aliens contacted other civilizations, specifically in the, the South America. And there's kind of like, when you start unpicking those ideas, you clearly see Jack going, wait, 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 this is just weird and wrong. You know, because the core idea of the Eternals is you've got these deviants who are the bad guys and the Eternals with the good guys and humans who are us as a balance between these two poles. You know, the idea of a species just being bad and cursed to change, which are the deviants, like that's just off. So he immediately, this is where he introduces Carcass and the Reject. The Reject is someone who looks beautiful, like an Eternal on the outside, but is a, what's the murder? He's been twisted by society and it's, it's a nature versus nurture thing. It's also appearances versus reality thing. And then you've got Carcass, who is this enormous killing machine, but he's a philosopher, he's a poet. Jack's going, wait a minute, think about this. Think about what this really means. And that's why you're like Crow and Fina, the romance between them is particularly strong in these issues. And they're like part of the backbone of the whole Eternals run for me. You know what I mean? So this is where you really see him really going for it. And also I think it's before you think commercial concerns start impacting, you know, this is the bit where he's going for learning, he's still inventing stuff. This is kind of like very much the best stuff. Hearing you talk about it that way is really fascinating, specifically because like when we talk to writers in these reading clubs, oftentimes the first time our guest read whatever story we're talking about was when they were kids or is like, you know, I picked this up. I was reading this as it was coming out at my local comic shop or something like that. So hearing you detail the story that way, specifically with us having the knowledge that you read this for the first time, really in depth, really diving into it in preparation for your run on internals. When you were reading it, when you were diving into it, were you approaching the whole thing with that scientific, like, okay, how do we unpack this writerly brain? Or were you able to turn it off, read it as a fan, read it as just a pure like Marvel head first, and then go back and dissect it and, and get scientific about it? I've always got my science brain on. There's bits where Kirby overpowers you. Because when you actually sit down and read something, even with the scientific brain, it's kind of, oh my, look at that. Like when, you know, you get the, these incredible apocalyptic images of the celestials reaching into the deviant city of Lemuria. You can really live in those images. So the poetry of the work does overpower it because you, still, you always have an aesthetic effect. But when you're approaching it thinking, I'm going to be playing with these, you know, I don't think a scientific brain is necessarily a cold thing, but it's a revealing brain because you're looking for like, what does that really mean? Why was Jack doing that then? And how can you do something like that now? which speaks to the reasons why Jack did it without doing what Jack did. As a creator, I mean, what would Jack Kirby do is something I quite regularly say to myself. And generally speaking, what would Jack do is make something else up. You know, <laughs> like the idea <laughs> that most Jack Kirby thing isn't to do a Jack Kirby riff. It's kind of try to take it forward, go ever more into the void to see what's out there. Yeah. You talk about the poetry and it's not just the art, especially for me. I keep going back to there's one scene where Arishem 
he's standing on top of the temple and he's not moving. But I think it's Ajak who's talking about how he can tell that Arashem is working and he's doing things, even though he's not moving and he hasn't moved. He's doing so many things to the world that nothing will be the same again. And that sense of like, you feel the terror that the professor has, who is just a human who knows that like he's stuck there for the next 50 years. And there's so many things going on and so many like emotions that are evoked by a giant space god unmoving and the effect that that has on them. And I think that's so... It's so cool. It's such a blast. It's so good. The impossible cosmic power. I mean, the, the, the scale and majesty of the celestials. We talked about the images earlier, you know, like, but it's, as you say, it's also like, oh, we've changed the world without doing anything. That's a hair death. And then um, you've got that amazing scene with the Soviets. Like, we're going to launch a nuke at it. And then, the, oh, no, the nuke's turning back. It's going to annihilate us all. And then it's, oh, no, this is just an odd brain. And they will die of a heart attack. And it's the incredible cosmic power of the celestial. He just, without thinking, he did the psychic trick and and did that to them. And that, the idea of like, it's less than ants. Being in the presence of these star gods will destroy you. There's nothing we can do. That's trippy. (laughs) It's super trippy. And doing that on a simple five or six panel page. It's a very simple, the, the missile's coming, then it's coming closer. But the tone of his words, like that kineticism and that drama, it's so damn compelling. That's the craziest thing, too, that I kept having to remind myself that this is like also his artwork. Obviously, that's not something you can ever forget, but just the sheer amount of work that goes into it and the marriage between how he's putting words on the page, where he's putting words on the page, when he decides to go in for a classic Kirby close up, when he decides to just fill a panel with a sound effect, whatever it might be, it's so fascinating. And then there's just like the bigger scale of like sheer amount of work kind of element of it where like one person doing 19 issues of the thing all on their own is just madness. Yeah. The thing about Eternals, and this is the thing that got me when I was first reading it, was how unfinished it feels. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, like, it's not like, I think if if you go over to the other side of the street and read New Gods, you can see where it's going. With Eternals, I don't still think we see where we're going. I think we're still in the first act, <laughs> you know? Like, the fact he's still introducing characters and it's still spilling out, and it's like... And this is part of the reason that, it's, in my run, I try to make the like, Eternal Society as important for me. The idea, let's, let's say there's a hundred of them, let's let's drill into that. And that at least kind of came from right, reading Jack and thinking, oh, yeah, Jack had a lot more stuff that he was putting on the page and he's tying it together, and these all people have interacted. I mean, I was just flicking through and laughing at them, in issue 11, they kind of summon um, a bunch of Eternals together to, about to form the Unimind. And it's like, one go, it's a, disaster's happened the most inopportune time. Then someone else goes, agreed, lady. <laughs> I was at a party <laughs> in London. And everyone, someone else goes, I'd rather meditate than mingle with silly humans. And they're just like three random characters. Who are these random people? Maybe, maybe Jack had plans and we'll never know. You know, it's big. I mean, I have a million questions about your ongoing run with the Eternals. Just to ask the most basic question when it comes to it all is, what were those early conversations like? Do you have any insight in terms of like why this felt like a Kieran Gillen book? Why those conversations were happening? What your immediate reactions to it were? Whether you were immediately interested, whether you said, okay, maybe, I'm not really sure. Let me go read, see if there's something there that I want to dig into and then come out the other side. Like, how did that all get going? I must say, the latter one is pretty much where I was. I hadn't been at Marvel for a while, like uh, maybe a couple of years. 
And I stopped doing Marvel Universe stuff when I was doing Angela. So 2014, maybe 2015. And it's because I was aware that I just started doing Star Wars stuff at the same time. And I realized how much easier and fun I was finding the Star Wars stuff. And for me, that was a really big warning. I was about to burn out. Uh, this is how I operate. So I immediately backed out because I have no desire to be not good. <laughs> uh, so I stopped doing Marvel stuff and did the Star Wars stuff and just concentrate on that and micro own stuff. And eventually I stopped doing Star Wars stuff for similar reasons. And, oh, I've told enough Star Wars stories now. You know, and I played in the create our own bit. And I did a book called um, Peter Cannon over at Dynamite. And that was basically me dabbling with superheroes. I'm interested. Do you have anything left to say? And it was like, oh, no, maybe I'm interested in playing again. And at least part of that was born for me, like seeing what some of my friends were doing. Oh, that looks fun. Like seeing, I don't know, like uh, what John did over at the X-Men and thinking, John's clearly having a, a whale of a time here. So like when a CB reached out to me, it was like, I'll have a think about it. But I also immediately thought, like, I can see why you'd ask me. You know, I've been away from Marvel for a while. I've done pretty good stuff with gods. I previously did like all the four books and the Loki stuff. And I was like, you know, this actually maybe does make some sense. So I just went away and just dig into it. And it's what I always do when I'm offered the job and I actually want to consider it. It's like, do I care? Rather, can I find a way to make myself care? Because normally the process of researching is a process of falling into love. And especially because when you're looking at the eternal stuff is, you know, they've been 76 that came out. I'm, I'm like, I was born in 75. So they basically existed for as long as my life. But in reality, you could probably read all the Eternals comics that have been published in like a few hours. Like there's only a handful, there's a few miniseries uh, across the period. So it's a relatively limited canon. One of my aims was, can I tie them together in a way that feels respectful of everything, but makes it feel like it was created in one breath? I mean, one of the lines I've used a few times in interviews is um, trying to turn continuity into mythology. Like this comes off the back of Die, another book I do over at Image, which was very much me understanding Tolkien to some degree. And like what Tolkien did in terms of creating this idea that this just feels like a made of one cloth. And that's kind of what I meant. Like that's what Kirby was doing. Kirby was still unveiling his cloth. And I was like, okay, let's do something that feels like one cloth. Something which is, has this, um, one of my favourite Star Wars critics, uh, Tegan O'Neill, she um, did this amazing like series of Star Wars essays. And one of them was specifically one of the joys of Star Wars is not explaining everything. Part of the point of doing Star Wars is every time we explain something, I try to actually create new stuff as well. And at least part of that I see in Tolkien, because Tolkien gives the impression of how much history there is. That's at least part of the reason I fell on the Eternals, the idea that, oh yeah, this is something which I think I can make it feel like it's very much its own thing, because that's kind of the, the, the core problem of the Eternals for me, or one of them, is that they're kind of doing a job of something else. And in the case of like the Eternals, the, the plot of the Eternals is they are mistaken for gods. And that is less interesting in a world where the gods actually are there. You know? So like, you've got to find a slightly different... And I end up liking the idea of angels. The idea of these are the things created by gods because the celestials are the gods. And let's talk about angels. The idea of these weird, unchanging beings who are abstractly here to protect us. But are they really human? And I like, for me, it was like leading into the weirdness. And that was, to me, the kind of... The way to make the Eternals most interesting wasn't to soften them, <laughs> it's to harden them. Let's take everything that's weird about them and make that compelling. <laughs> You're not, you know, I'm not implying people weren't, but the idea of leading into the fact that these aren't four, these aren't, you know, the gorgeous of the galaxy. These are eternal beings, unchanging, and have their own problems. I mean, half the time they feel like Robocop, you know, and Robocop's the tragedy. You know, the idea you know, you have these three, you have the four laws, and it's stopping you being fully human. And that's kind of like the, the Sisyphean sadness of my Eternals, I guess. You know, when you, when you talk about sort of the hardness of them, I think of the grimace on Icarus's face, mm. like 90% of the time, which is so good. And it's like this stone face multiple 
meanings to that. And part of that is coming across so well in your run is your main collaborator, Asad. How did he become the artist for the title? When I said yes, we were never actually had an artist attached to it yet. And it was like, how about Asad? And he literally is running around the house. Because like, like, honestly, I think that he's the best fantasy artist working today in comics. He's someone whose work I find just like humbling. And it was like, yes, yes. <laughs> it's honestly, it's that kind of, they could not, you know, any book at, at all at Marvel. Uh, they said, we're going to have Asad draw it. I would have said yes. So I was happy. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. And it's tough shoes for him to fill in the sense that, like, this is a book drawn by Jack Kirby and John Romita Jr. You know, like, there's certain levels of visual storytelling that are there. And, man, he just knocks it out of the park every time. There's the subtle things, like, there's movements. Obviously, his his mastery of, like, the humanoid shape is almost unparalleled. But just, like, I can close my eyes and I can see Icarus coming out of, like, the resurrection chamber. And, like, the way he's, like, moving it feels so real without feeling like he's replicating what Jack did or what Johnny did. He's a visionary artist. I talked to earlier about the idea of scale. That's what Essad is. And when I think of Essad, you know, the Michelangelo-esque, actually more Leonardo, you know, I think about it. It's a mastery of figure and shape and form. But the definitive Essad panels, I think, are always the deep focus panels. Like, I always think about that one he did with Jason, like the enormous giant, I think it was a corpse, in the background. And, the, you know, you've got this thing so far all the way back. And it's just like, oh, right, that is enormous and real and tangible. And I'm always kind of looking to those kind of, let's give Essendon a deep shot. You know what I mean? Because it, it will feel big like nothing else. I got into comics and I really like stuff like the authority with Hitch doing it. And like the small figures against big backgrounds. You know, and that was one of the stylistic things. That, I mean, Cassidy was doing Planetary too. And obviously the Ultimates down the line as well. And the idea that, you know, small figure, a larger background, you get immediately the impossibility of superhero stuff. Like tight focus gives you kind of that Kirby-esque power. Like, you, you get the physicality, but you want to know the sense of a human-shaped thing acting like this, you need a long shot. Essence will do both, and Essence's long shots will be completely different to almost anybody else just because the, the atmosphere. And of course, how Matt does it as well. I mean, that Matt's, as a colorist, of course, that and the specials. This is a really interesting and synthesized team. There's a really lovely bit in issue seven uh, Clayton, he's doing the data pages in mass. Clayton is somebody I've worked with like all the way back to Journey to Mystery. He's like my letter of like choice on my creator own too. Um, and this is the first time he's done pages like this. But there's something we do when we actually take the data pages and, and integrate them into SAD's work. So you actually see like Drew Rigg using the data page as a presentation. And that's one of these things like there's moments like that I just feel, oh yeah, this team's cooking. This is the comics team. We're not like this is sort of thing that a cartoonist would tend to do by themselves. It's supposed to like these four separate jobs. This is this feels like the team is really going for it. And I was very happy because it's funny because it's just obviously it's not like a, a big showy moment, but it's just the kind of, OK, this is an option. We can do this. It's one of those teams that like stretches the like boundary of like how much I'm allowed to freak out as like a Marvel employee and saying like <laughs> what a crazy like dream team it is to see these issues come out every single time we get to read one of them because just the level that everybody's playing at is ridiculous. You were talking about the visual nature of Esad's work and the scale that he builds into things. It got me thinking about, especially I think for someone, Kieran, who does do so much work. You have such a, a high level of output. I wonder, and I often wonder this with any creative, like, how do you refill the tank? 
to find inspiration, to get yourself feeling like, you know, yeah, you got stuff to get you back at the typewriter, so to speak. You know what I mean? Honestly, it's tricky. I think if you talk to every writer, you get to an answer for this anyway. But the older I get, the more I'm kind of creating space to recharge aggressively. I've always been pretty good at deadlines. I come from a journalist background. You know, I plan, I leave a lot of regularity in my schedule. And I especially like, I read a variety of like, Kelly Sue DeConnick recommended me a few of them, but like aggressively in terms of like leaving space away from the actual computer and leaving just other stuff. <laughs> and that's at least part of it. There's a degree of like, I try to force myself to do stuff without podcast playing. Part of it's, I'm always researching, so podcasts are always a part of that as well, like the historical aspect. And the other side is, there's a bit in um, Cat's Cradle, I think, if Vodigat's Cat's Cradle, where they talk about the guy who created the thing that's, this uh, ice nine which is the thing that can destroy the world the reason why i started is you drop it and it changes the isotope and all the water becomes solid spoilers and at one point he's working on something in the military and they describe this thing and uh and he just stops working he starts researching fungus instead and all he does is research fungus it's basically handlers are kind of worried about him and it's like what could we need to, he needs to be making bombs for the military what can we do and it's like don't worry just take away the fungus and then just leave it and they, they take all the fungus overnight and he walks in the room and he sort of looks around and can't find the fungus. So he carries on, eventually sees something else. And the only things in the room are related to his job, which is making bombs for the military. And he starts making bombs again. There's a bit of that to me. Like, if you don't give me an immediate distraction and leave me in a blank room, I'll eventually make up something relevant to what I should be working on. Because that kind of like, that daydreaming, like, and it's aggressively like, okay, I need to plot the next arc of Eternals. I'm going to go for a walk with no distractions. And by walking, I'll be forced myself to think about it. Or I'll wander away and come back to it. So that's at least the process. In terms of rejuvenating, it's that kind of... I, I often try to not read fiction related to what I'm writing, unless it's specifically what I'm writing. By which I mean is like, if I'm working... Let's say I'm doing a fantasy comic, I wouldn't be reading that, that many fantasy comics. In fear, I'd just rip it off, even subconsciously. Unless it was a fantasy comic about other comics, like Die this book of the image has a lot of stuff which is about Tolkien or about H.G. Wells or about Lovecraft or the Brontes. And then I read all the Brontes and, you know, Lovecraft and whatever because I'm specifically talking about them. And it's a bit like that with Marvel in that, like, I will tend to read intensely what I'm writing. When I did Star Wars, I've been looking at the Star Wars stuff. But that's kind of part of my work brain. And occasionally it skims into my private personal time, which I try to keep demarcated from it. But the other flip of all that... What I love about comics is that you work in multiple projects simultaneously. So like if I would do a week on Eternals, next week I'll be working on something else, say. That gives a chance to return. I think the real answer is I try to rejuvenate myself in different ways over periods of time. At the moment, it's about me turning off work, me trying to do stuff other than just work, uh, me reading stuff just to amuse myself. And of course, the problem, the way the brains work, returning to the fungus cat's cradle metaphor is, like, I will eventually stop wanting to do that. <laughs> you know and i've just read four thrillers back to back for reasons too common to explain which is not a genre i read very often and now i'm just thinking about thriller structure i'm thinking about okay how can you do crime fiction in comics by using these techniques and i know okay how does this work what's transferable you know like writers are kind of magpies like that it's very hard something just to be a hobby for me i think that's a common thing though i mean i think just simply the stuff that we do at marvel covering all the marvel stuff talking about it getting excited about it reading it all like you have to separate. I mean, we all have to find different things. And then you sort of find ways to start turning that into less hobby, more like this is a thing I do and got to stop that. That's it's bad for our, for our psyches. I think at certain points, mm. so we just got to be able to turn off and enjoy that said, 
one thing I really enjoyed in Eternals that we read by Jack Kirby was Carcass and the Reject, characters that have shown up a little bit. I've always had a fondness for Carcass simply because that is one of the greatest character designs. Like he's a giant monster. He's got like short arms and legs and, but he's terrifying, but he's just so sweet. And he's just, you know, when, when Thena's like touching him, he's like, ah, thank you, my lady. (laughs) You know, he's just like, so he's all buttery and wonderful. And that first shot you see of the reject is such a great splash page because mm. that build up it's like six panels and they take off the hood and he's down and he's like th- he's like got his hands in front of his face you just see the black hair the next page and it's like <gasps> gasps from all the deviants and he's just really what a handsome guy such a, a fun <laughs> one-two punch as you get through their story in those couple of issues yeah it's, it's delightful honestly i love that like um the second arc of Eternals, like the first arc is mainly about rebuilding the Eternals. The second arc for me was very much like, okay, now we're going to talk about the Deviants. And it's not just the Deviants, but it's like, you know, the Castor in Lemuria now, so we get to meet Crow. We get to meet the Reject, we get Carcass. And like Carcass and Reject only a relatively small part, but I really was looking forward to writing them for exactly the reasons you described. And I, I absolutely do the pretty boy joke because, you know, that kind of, oh, he's so hideous. <laughs> <laughs> There's something that, nothing that stops being funny about that. Uh, yeah. And of course, Carcass is just this sweet, sweet guy. And I do like the idea. Of, it's one of those weird things that just because you've got a gift to do something doesn't mean that it's what you should be. You know, like, and Car- I don't want to fight people. I'm really strong. He's a kind, sweet guy. And that's the cast of the mob universe who are like that. Always good for me because it reminds you that, you know, yeah, you can follow your gift, but your gift doesn't necessarily mean you have to define yourself by your gift, I guess. And that suppose the links to what we were saying earlier. Like uh, the thing that's most useful in my work is doing washing up. And we've got a dishwasher, but it's terrible and small, and it can now can't even, it doesn't work basically. So I, I basically do all the dishwashing in the house, or like about 85 percent of it. But like it's a really good time to think again. It's actually kind of like it's like playing Tetris with plates. And imagine Carcass would be the same as in, you know, Carcass has great gifts, but I really just want to do the washing up. You know, it's a great visual though as well. Yeah, we've talked about them on the show, the sort of the side issues, the Thanos Rises, which the ending to that one, holy <laughs> Karen, yeah. Um There was that one, and then there was uh, Celestia, which was really, really cool. They're very important to the overall story you're telling and great collaborators and all that, but I'm just putting this out there. I think there's great room for a carcass and reject story that's just like a big, who knows? There's probably someone great you can collaborate to tell that story with. I would love to do it. That, you mentioned the specials. At least part of the thing is, this is in the, talking about the spirit of Kirby in this. Like, yeah, the fact he was always, this is an issue about this, then we're going to go over here. We do a bit of that in the main series. And of course, we do it quite a lot. But also we do the going back into different periods. And with that, we can do these specials. And for me, like, definitely part of the whole story. But it's also like, I want it to be a positive feeling rather than a negative feeling. The specials are always kind of the proof of the concepts in terms of, oh, yeah. This is endless. Eternals is much bigger than any number of stories. I will not finish writing the stories I have for Eternals. There's too many of them. And that's part of the point. In talking about this and in looking at both the 76 run, but also like your process and jumping on board with Eternals and things like that, going from the character details and things like that up to the bigger story you're telling, when you were coming up with your story, how much did your brain go to this is the in-universe story. This is the source material. These are the things that I want to dive into. And how much of it was affected by this is what our world 
knows of the Eternals, like the reputation of the book, the space that it occupies, the fact that it was a Kirby book, the fact that, like you said, there's a limited canon to it all. Can you quantify how much of your inspiration came from one place or the other? It's tricky because people don't, even big Marvel fans might have trouble like saying exactly what the Eternals were. Would they necessarily know the difference between the Inhumans and the Eternals all the time? And I don't mean that in a bad way, isn't that kind of, you know, they're one of the secret peoples, so the, you know, and they're very powerful. Oh, in the uni mind. If you're going to do that, what are the iconic elements? And for me, it was like, let's keep all the iconic elements and just do something cool with them. Like, I turned the uni mind into the whole political system. Like, in issue, like issue seven, we finally show the uni mind again. And like, you get an S ad at uni mind, which is beautiful and exactly as weird as you want it. Because the uni mind is just a, it's a weird curvy design, you know, this floating brain with eyes at the front. Like, Jack, what is that thing? What, it's going to fight Galactus. Are you sure? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I love them. I love them so. But like looking at those cool elements and running with them. And also like it's the same way of like all the characters, despite the fact we're kind of definitely tweaking stuff in significant ways, it's tweaking stuff in a way which builds upon what I hope people know about those characters. You know, Icarus is like this. We use the device of the machine in the book of uh, describing everyone as, as a noun. Like Icarus is the arrow. Uh, is a serpent and we're really saying what they are you know we're not actually hiding it we're just and then we're trying to boil these characters down to and this is why you might care about them i often think about this as a you're trying to have a take on the characters and i do this even characters who are known quite well the idea of okay what's your basic take on them and it's like you know just enough spin to rejuvenate them in the same way like ajak and makari who were in the um celestia uh, special we did which is when we finally get a chance to introduce them and they were like the ones i was really into because going from um gaming and ramita jr and then the now akuna run afterwards they were really interesting positions you know like ajak ajak is all the way through earlier and they're the person's always explaining they're taking the kind of seer type role and then you've got this whole later plot that's only makari is speaking to the dreaming celestial and then eventually it's like, oh yeah, the dreaming slash got cut up by X-Men villains and blown up. I did that. <laughs> um, it's like, and I, I found myself looking at that, all those characters' stories. And this person literally thought the dreaming slash was then going to set them free. And that's the story I'm going to tell. As in, the, you know, a new and old church and both have been disappointing. How that, where the hell are they going to go from here? You know what I mean? As in like, here's a new take on them. But if you actually know the story, it's like, oh no, that makes perfect sense from where they came from. And that's kind of the trick for me, as in I want to reward people who really love the Eternals and, and reward them in a way that I hope makes them realise that, um, oh yeah, he knows he's tweaking this, but he knows we know we're tweaking it. And I hope, I think I can see why. One of the characters that I really dig and that you mentioned a little bit is the machine and just the the narrator of the title. I Just the tone and the feeling and the way that it it sort of integrates through and welcomes you in, I think it's it's a really successful way to take some very dense concepts and characters and lore and make them appealing to someone who might be picking this up because maybe, oh, look, there's a giant, massive movie in cinemas. And so you get a voice in there that sort of brings it all together in a really, really fun way. I just really dig the the narration throughout the title. Thank you. When I was writing that, I was aware, are people going to go for this? I was thinking about third-person narration. And that you end up with, okay, what's the voice there? And most third-person narration, you end up with like what Jason did over on 4. And I was aware that, you know, we're, the Eternals have risk of feeling like 4 anyway in this operatic mode. And it's like, okay, how can I make, I don't want to do that because it, 4 has that niche. How can I make something epic but itself? And at least part of it is make it quirkier. 
let's make the race with the planet Earth. That was the weird kind of penny dropping. I said, oh yeah, and the Earth's broken. So you end up in a kind of hitchhiker's guide kind of mode. And especially because the Earth can be a practic as well. You know, like you have moments where it really goes through and it's very poetic, but he dulls back. And that gives it the timber of the, you know, that you mean as in like, yeah, absolutely. This is Eternals is unlike anything else on the shelf. And that's kind of the aim, as in like, the narrator being this occasionally funny, quite often not. There's a lot, but thank you. I'm glad you like it. Because I was very aware that this could work not well or not at all. <laughs> no, I, I think it works really well. I have to plug here for listeners. Kieran did an excellent interview with with Ben Morris for Marvel.com where you got into so many of these details and talked about it in, in a really fascinating and, and funny way also. One of the, the sort of key quotes that stood out to me from that interview that you did, and this is the quote exactly, is you said, what I think the Eternals really lacked is tragedy. They lacked Uncle Ben, which I think is a really fascinating angle on it all. And it's like just that little key when you turn, when I feel like when Ryan was coming out of the story meetings, when Ryan was coming out of the all the Marvel Comics writers talking about all their plans for what's coming in the next year, two years, whatever it is, and telling me, oh my God, Kieran's Eternals pitch. Holy cow. Like it's you literally have no what happened. Idea. I remember yeah. <laughs> th- those we were, it was cause it was during the pandemic you had a presentation and I was like, Oh, and I was like <laughs> telling them, I was like, y'all, this is going to be so good. Yeah. And, and so hearing that, but then also just understanding your take on it with a key as simple as that, as simple as the uncle Ben angle or something like that. It is so fascinating how a little door like that opens up and it becomes this whole universe that is obviously so many characters so complex and so so fascinating to dive into but it's a really really cool thing that it can be that simple at times yeah it's like when you mentioned asked earlier about the um like the critic brain a bit it is that you know what i mean because the critic brain is also the fan brain it says why isn't this quite working you know what i mean or like that why doesn't this feel marvelly and that leads to oh no it's the uncle ben that's you know that's these are kind of my big weird rambling theories about the marvel universe and it's like oh yeah what's a good treasure oh it's about life isn't it and then the rest is just kind of there. And then it's like, oh no, this is a really useful prism because it's um, one of my favorite things about the idea is like, of course, if it goes away tomorrow, any Eternal who's actually worth a, you know, a hero, it still feels bad. They know they will never pay this back or they're going to have to try because that's literally what mobile heroes do. You try to pay back what you can't really pay back. And of course, the slightly less epical uh, Eternals, like the ones who are saying, oh, you have my party disturbed. <laughs> they're like, we just don't care. It's not a problem for them. And you know what I mean? And it, that for me, like so much about superhero comics is the question of ethics. You know, it's about what is the best way to, it, with great power comes great responsibility. I mean, does it? I mean, like it does it for certain kind of heroic people, but what do we choose to do with power? What do we choose to do with our lives? And that's kind of like, um, yeah, it was for me, it was like, oh yeah, this is it. And I was so amazed when I sent in the first document, which is all this. I had a big, the first thing I sent Marvel was the kind of, this is what I think is wrong with the Eternals, and this is how I think I would like to tweak it. And like it included like a lot of this kind of stuff, and especially that, and everyone really responded very positively to that. I mean, my major worry was how backloaded it was. Like, drop issue six is quite a long time to reveal that, and I was like, are people going to hang around? And for me, it was like, no, I, you've got to set the stage, you've got to make sure it matters, you know. And these are the people, this is the world which is being upended because it's a book about the status quo. And the problem with the Eternals is the status quo, they can't escape. <laughs> they are trapped in it in this awful way. Never die, never win, as the, the tagline goes. 
God, that's such a mean tagline, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> really? <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? That. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad you responded to it like that because it's, um, especially because you can see it going forward now. And like, this is just going to hang over all these people's heads. I mean, Fastos is the guy I feel sorry for in this. Um, but most of it is the reason why Icarus had to be the lead as well. Because um, I naturally didn't want to make Icarus the lead. I would have probably wanted to make Cersei it. But like, no, Icarus is the one it would hurt most because he's the simplest character. He's a simple, I'm the hero. I'm going to do the heroic thing. And of course, he's the person you could follow through and it, therefore it impacts him worse. Yeah, there's a moment in Seven, he has a bit in Seven that I, I really dug where he, the weight of it all, you sort of see it starting to hit him. And Seven uh, has some some more big changes for the Eternals and uh, for the team. And so for anybody who's listening, if you're a fan of Thanos, maybe you've seen him on the covers, you've seen him around, Definitely pick up the book. I think it's a good time to dive in. Check out those first six issues, the two specials. Just go go whole hog on this. And then go back and read Jack Kirby's Eternals because, man, it's freaking great. I'm so glad we read this with you, Kieran. Me too. Honestly, like, obviously I've read it several times now, but going back and reading it again, like after I've written, like I've written like 14 issues of Eternals now, like the two specials. But going back and reading it again now, it's like, oh yeah, how much stuff I'd internalized and how much stuff is still... I'm seeing... When I read it earlier, I noticed something and I was like, oh, I could use that. And I've read a scribbled a note and like a story that'll come out next year but explicitly have something I'm going to lift from that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Ooh. So like, it, it's just so kaleidoscope. It's this, this fractal design. There's so much stuff in every little bit and it's a real great joy to read. I really recommend people take time out and take it in. We've been useful. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. I can't believe it. <laughs> we did it once after 170 some odd yep. episodes. Once. Good job, us. Uh Kieran, thanks for being on the show and keep making some awesome comics. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks so much for having me. You've been guys have been great. This has been lovely. Thank you once more to Kieran, just one of the smartest guys around, one of the nicest guys around. Really, really fun to talk to. And just a delight to see him. Talk about, obviously, Kirby's run, to talk about his run, but to see the connections he makes, to see not just the Marvel references he makes, but the literary references, the pop cultural references, the cultural references. It's all built in there. And if you've been reading his run on Eternals, you can tell. Because like we talked about in that interview, from the get-go, we knew that was going to be a huge story. And boy, has it been so great. Heck yeah. All right, this episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And while he enjoys a good Scotty and Peach, his drink of choice is Scotty and Beats. He loves any drink <laughs> with Beats. That's our Brad. <laughs> if you see Brad out and about at your local watering hole, <laughs> buy him a nice glass of Beats. I'm Ryan. Cheers, Ryan. I'm Tucker. This is Marvel, your universe.